We're going to clean up a little bit from John chapter 7 with Jesus and the Pharisees. Then we're going to roll in, we're going to roll a little bit by the woman in adultery that Pastor Stephen preached on this morning. And then we're going to look a little bit more into John chapter 8. So John chapter 7 verses 45 to 52 asks this question, which I think is an important uh, question for us all. And it's the reason that, that I want to underscore it for just a moment. What does a, a Christian look like? What, how do you put the pieces of the puzzle together so that you get the whole picture of what it is? And in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, there's a real discourse going on because the Pharisees considered themselves the, the cream of the crop when it came to religiosity. They were the examples. They were the most devout. They were the ones who said everything right. They were the ones who dotted their I's and crossed their T's. They were at every service. They had the pristine seats at every service. They tithed everything down to the vegetables in their garden. They really considered themselves the very best of the best. And yet they were at such odds with Jesus. Because Jesus perceived true religion, true faithfulness to God. Chasing after God's heart, Jesus perceived it very differently than the Pharisees. And I think it's worth looking at for just a moment. So within the context of Jesus telling the Pharisees that they weren't getting it, we had a couple of passages that I looked at. Isaiah 57, 1 through 13 is one of the passages I put into the reading. It's not anything that we need to go into in depth. But Isaiah 57, 1 through 13 is a good illustration of, of what seemed to be missing, one of the key elements missing for the Pharisees. Isaiah 57, 1 through 13. Isaiah spoke and said, The righteous man perishes and no one takes it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Aren't you children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree and do all of these horrible, horrible things. He ends this chapter, by, or this, this section, Isaiah ends this section, saying, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you don't fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Isaiah is not describing the Pharisees per se, but he's describing a time in Israel's life when the, the, the leadership had embraced a false idea of religion, had embraced idols, 
and were mocking and making fun of those they seemed to think less devout and holy than themselves. And I would suggest the same principle is there that was there for the Pharisees. The idols for the Pharisees were not little clay figurines. The idols for the Pharisees was their religiosity. If I could get one image into everyone's brain this morning, it would be this image. Um, Okay, hold on. Clean sheets. Someone accused me the other day. They said, uh, do you watch the show Monk? Because I try to keep everything. And I said, yes. They said, that figures. And I said, why? Are you one of those weirdos who think there's something wrong with him? Here is God. And here is man. God reaches down to man through the the gospel, through the cross of Christ. Man reaches up to God through religion. And we have to be real careful because we worship God who has reached down to man. We do not worship religion. Religion can become an idol. But religion is a reflection of how we are relating to God. And the problem with the Pharisees is religion became the object of their worship. And they thought God related to them because of their religion. They thought it was the religion that allowed God to reach down and to communicate and to to bless and to grace them. Instead of realizing that the religion should be growing out of a relationship established by God's grace and mercy. Not by, and by God's righteousness, not by our deeds. So within that framework, the Isaiah passage speaks good. And, and the idol question, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you when you cry out, let your collection of good deeds deliver you. Would be the, the way you would put that into words for the, the, the Pharisees. And so we don't have that. Now I put in also Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Matthew 23 has the selection of woes where Jesus is saying, woe to the Pharisees for this and woe to the Pharisees for that. He's got seven of them, a nice full number. The seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. So we have it here where Jesus says to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, but... Don't do what they do. They preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders. But they're not willing to move them with their finger. Now, don't get me wrong. If you read what Jesus says here, it's not that the Pharisees weren't doing those deeds. It's that the Pharisees were binding them upon other people without any sense of heart, without any sense of compassion without any sense of anything to help other people do them. I mean, it's one thing for me to say, hey, you need to do A, B, and C and put a big burden on you. 
The Christian way to do it is to say, hey, we need to be about the Lord's business, A, B, and C. How can I help you get there? There's a difference. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Their phylacteries are broad. Their fringes are long. These are our Jewish uh, uh, accoutrements to, to the way they dress that uh, uh, were reflected in, in uh, reflective of their reading of Moses' uh, law. They love the place of honor at feasts. They love the best seats in the synagogue. They love the greetings in the marketplace. They loved being called rabbi. But you don't need to be called rabbi. You have one teacher. You're all brothers. Call no man your father on earth. You have one father who's in heaven. Don't be called instructors. You have one instructor, the anointed, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's face. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now these are some interesting verses and if we just read them on a face value, we walk away thinking that's very strange. I can't call my father my father on earth. I can't call uh, uh, my teacher my teacher. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, is we, we, we can't read this passage like we might in third grade. We got we to gotta read this passage to, to get the heart of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is addressing a people who have a high and mighty view of who they are. And he's pronouncing a, a, a declaration that should bring them down in humility. Don't be exalted. Don't seek the position of exaltation. Don't be lifted up. People shouldn't be looking at you saying, you are my rabbi. You are my hero. Everybody needs to recognize we all have a commonality under the Lord. It is the Lord who teaches if I'm of any use to God and His kingdom up here right now, it's not because Mark Lanier is of use to God and His kingdom. It's because God is at work in Mark Lanier. And so any praise and glory for any good that comes out of what we do in this class goes to the Lord. It doesn't, yeah, to Him. It doesn't come to me. It doesn't come to you. It doesn't come to any of us. All we are are vessels longing for His Spirit to work in us. And that is a, a an understanding of humility that we need to strive for. It's something that, that, it's a goal that we need to work towards. A recognition, a conscious understanding of who we are in the light of God. And so this, when Jesus says to, to, to whoever humbles himself will be exalted, the goal behind that is not, well, I'm going to humble myself so I can be exalted because I really want to be good and great. And I want people to look at me and think, ooh, man. No, you just lost the humility. You know, that's the guy who writes the book, Humility and How I Achieved It. Uh, that doesn't work. The point that Jesus is making is, in arrogance, haughtiness, Pride 
and, and, and self-delusions of grandeur, you not only aren't doing anybody else any good, but you're not doing yourself good either. You're shutting yourself out of the kingdom as well as those around you. And so the goal behind this needs to be one of, of humility, not a false humility, but a true humility that comes from a vision of God, an encounter with God Almighty that leaves us all in common. Bob and I were flying, was Mike Moriarty in here this morning? We're flying with Mike Moriarty one time, and Mike said, uh, looked out the window. We were up pretty high, and he says, looked out the window of the airplane, and he says, man, we're up so high, all my uncles look like ants. kind of good. Uh, there's, there is a vision point where there's a commonality. And, and that's, that's what Jesus is saying. So we have that. I added this marked by humility. There are countless Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 23, uh, 18, 12. I'm not going to go through them all because I want to spend some time doing some other stuff. But, but look through those Proverbs the Proverbs, I could have put eight days of readings of Proverbs up there for how important it is to be humble. It teaches us who we are. We have better sight for others. We serve others better. We have wisdom. We have a better vision of God. There is something that, that, that is innate within humility. Because what humili- true humility is, and what I would love to, to reach before I die, What true humility is, is a recognition of who God is. Because there is no place for human arrogance or pride before God. There's just not. So, um, um, we had that. And then I went ahead and put in Luke 14, Proverbs 25, and Daniel 10. Let's look at a couple of those for a moment. The Luke 14 passage is a good passage. Luke 14, 7 through 11. It's very short. It's the parable of the wedding feast. But it just reinforces this attitude that Jesus had. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, so here's what it is. Jesus is in a home group. And some people come in and they take the, they, I'm going to sit at his right hand. I'm going to sit at his left hand. And they start grabbing the places at the table that are, are the choice spots. And Jesus comes in and sits down. And I wonder how they felt when he said this. <laughs> kind of like, <clears throat> when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And the one who invited you both comes and says, "Um, (laughs) that's not your seat, that's for him. Sorry, you're not important enough to sit there. Uh, And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. How much cooler would it be when you're invited that you go sit in the lowest place? So the host comes up to you and says, hey, buddy, we got you at the head table. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
and someone is saying, yeah, but we live in a dog-eat-dog world where if you're not assertive and you don't make stake your claim, it's just not going to happen for you. Eh. It happening for you may be a bit overrated. Okay, Daniel 10. Uh, first, we'll throw in one proverb. I had Proverbs 25, 1 through 7. Then we'll go to Daniel 10. Proverbs 25, 1 through 7. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. It's the glory of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to search things out. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth. By the way, if you read a passage like this, this should be like the patron passage for Janet Seifert, for you, for scientists, for researchers who find great joy in discovering how God's made something or done something. It's a cool thing. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As the heavens for height, the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from silver, and the, silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the king, and he'll have a good throne. And look at this next one and see if maybe Jesus had read his Proverbs. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. It's better to be told, come up here 